Well, good morning. Aren't you glad you're not camping this morning? Good decision. Well chosen. Um, it's good for us to be back. We uh, have been on vacation for the past couple of weeks. We got a chance to go down to the Northwest and uh, visit our family and extended family and uh, saw Seaside, Oregon and Portland and Seattle and Mount Rainier and Grove of the Patriarchs and all of these great things. So uh, it was a good time. Uh, we missed you all, as we always do when we're traveling. Uh, so it's good to be back. Um, I want to thank uh, Pastor Mark and uh, Daniel Schubert, who each preached for me uh, while I was gone. And I can't tell you what a blessing it is to be able to uh, leave uh, for a time. That sounded bad. What a blessing it is to leave, y'all. <laughs> Hang with me. <laughs> and, uh, and to know uh, that I'm leaving the pulpit in good and capable hands. And that is a blessing for any pastor. So I uh, thank Mark and uh, Daniel who were in first service and are continuing their work with our youth this morning. Uh, so if you would, uh, bow with me. We're going to pray. And then we'll dive into our text. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for um, the abundant examples around us of your power and your goodness and your intimate care. We see the mountains. We see uh, the vast rivers around us. Uh, as my family has been able to see, just some remarkable scenes in the Northwest, thousand-year-old trees. We see things in this world um, that point to a creator and a designer and a good God. They show us your power and your glory and your might. And yet we also see, like this morning, the gentle rain which falls and waters the earth. And we see the sun that comes up and dries things out and give life and vitality to living things. So while we see your grandeur and your glory and your magnificence in powerful things, we see your common grace, such as rain and sun that are given to all. We thank you, Lord, for your special grace that has been extended to us who believe that we've been brought into your family because of your son, because by your grace you have drawn near to us and provided a savior, a sacrifice that was worth the sin of humanity. And being very God, he could be of infinite worth and being very man he could be our representative and so we rejoice greatly we have an amazing God and an amazing salvation because of what you've done so we gather here this morning not because there wasn't anything better to do or because we couldn't find a camping site but because our God deserves to be worshipped so we worship you and we continue to do that now as we come to your scriptures and we ask that you would speak to us through your revelation we don't worship a book, but the God of this book. So teach us about you now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you'd open to Matthew 17, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. Continuing on in our series uh, through the Gospel of Matthew titled King Jesus. And I have uh, shown you uh, over these past six or seven months, we started this in, in December, I've been showing you carefully uh, how the great pains that Matthew goes into to show us Jesus as king. And that is the focus of this gospel. If you missed that, you have missed it. 
we see Jesus as king, and this morning we get another uh, glimpse of that as well. I want to ask you a question to think about for just a moment here, and I'm going to actually give you a little bit of time as I give you some examples to consider. If you were asked to name this particular season in your life, what would it be? If you were to describe it or have some words that sort of characterize what this season in your life right now is, what would it be? In other words, there are probably some primary movements that are going on, uh, maybe some feelings, maybe some hopes dashed, maybe some expectations met, whatever the main movements are going on in your life and how you feel about them, how would that characterize your life at this point as a season? What is this season that you are going through? Perhaps you're in a season of growth. Maybe you're new to the faith. You've just come to understand Christ as your Savior. And maybe you're learning what it means to now grow into Christ and to put on the image and the likeness of Him. And so you're learning how to put off your old life and how to put on the clothes, so to speak, if if I could, of Christ and His likeness and imitating Him as His follower and disciple. Maybe you're in a season of growth. Uh, Maybe you're in a season of trusting and waiting. Uh, Maybe you have a longing for a spouse and you're just waiting, you know, just waiting any day now. Maybe you're waiting for a child. This is your heart's dream that God would give you a child and you're waiting. You're waiting for that that time. Or maybe you're waiting for your career to finally get some traction. Uh, Started out okay, but maybe you've stalled out and you're just waiting, waiting for a little traction. Maybe you're in a season of conflict. There's no two ways about it. It's hard. And you feel it. And you're going through it. And you need help and encouragement. And you need God to give you strength and humility so that you might pursue peace and reconciliation. Uh, Maybe, I'm going to give you a lot of examples this morning. Maybe you're in a season of grief or loss. You've lost a loved one. Or you've had to say goodbye to something. Or someone uh, that you loved. And you're looking to the Lord for how do you grieve? How do you let go? How do you get closure? How do you move on and do this in a way that honors the Lord? Maybe you're in a season of rejoicing. Uh, this morning, I, I uh, you know, greeting people as, as uh, they're coming in and, and they're asking about our vacation and whatnot. One woman walks right up to me with her phone, which usually means there's a picture, right? And she shows me her first grandchild. That's the season of rejoicing, right? Because your kids get to take care of all of the mess. And you just get to see this beautiful thing. Maybe you're in a season of considering your legacy. You know, as you look at your life, you know there's lots more years behind you than ahead of you. And you're thinking about what God would do with you in your remaining years and time. And what impressions you would like to leave behind. And what legacy you would like to have spoken of you. Um, What season are you in? This morning we're going to look at um, an event that has often been puzzling to me, if I'm honest with you. Uh, It's the transfiguration of Christ. And I think oftentimes I've thought about it as sort of an arbitrary or almost a random kind of occurrence. And question, why is this here and what was God doing with it? But in fact, this morning, I think we're going to see that this event isn't random or abstract or arbitrary at all. But in fact, very purposeful, very gracious of God 
uh, and that in this particular event, we're going to learn a couple of things here. First of all, that God knows the season of our life. He knows what we're in right now. He is well acquainted with what concerns us. He knows this season. And that he gives us encouragement in the midst of the different seasons that we're in. Just what we need. And thirdly, he gives us strength for tomorrow. He's preparing us actively for the season that is ahead that we don't even know about yet. And I think all of these things are apparent in this incident with the transfiguration of Christ. Contextually here, we always want to read our Bible in context. We're, we're coming out of Matthew 16 into 17, and that really marks a turning point actually uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, particularly in the life of Jesus and in his disciples. Uh, what we find here is that Peter has just made a bold profession of faith in the end of chapter 16, and Pastor Mark preached about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when Jesus asked Peter's opinion, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, And yet despite this claim and this profession of Christ's glory, Jesus and his disciples are entering into a season that is going to look anything but glorious. It's going to look anything but like this like the description that Peter has given to him. Jesus is beginning to turn more and more toward Jerusalem. The end of his Galilean ministry is is here. He's come to a close in that, and now he turns his face and he is set on Jerusalem and, and all that lies for him there. Arrest, conflict, doubt, crucifixion, death and burial, and the shame that accompanies it. And so this is a real turning point as Jesus begins to set his face and his ministry towards Jerusalem. And what we're going to see here in the transfiguration of Jesus, again, is that it had a threefold impact on Jesus and on his disciples. It served as a confirmation of Peter's remarkable confession of faith, which I just read to you. It also serves as an encouragement for the disciples before a particularly difficult season of ministry. And then somewhat, maybe surprisingly, it actually seems to serve as an encouragement for Christ himself. Uh, And so the significance for us is going to be, again, that God knows the season we're in. He gives us encouragement for today, and he gives us strength for tomorrow. So look in chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses, Elijah, Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, and whenever you see that phrase, and Peter said, you want to pay attention, right? Not necessarily because it's going to be interesting or authoritative or without error, Uh, but because it's going to be entertaining, shall we say, right? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here with you, right? If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground, terrified. 
But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. All right, well, the first point I want to draw out is this, that the transfiguration really serves as a confirmation of Peter's statement of faith. Again, back in chapter 16, we saw Jesus kind of putting a pole in the field, if you will, looking for public opinion. Who do people say that I am? And they talk about it a little bit. And then he turns and says, well, who do you say that I am? And uh, again, we see Peter's remarkable profession. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I do believe that Peter grew about a foot taller that day, right? He got it right. For once in Peter's life and ministry, he got it right. Who do you say that I am? Well, I say this, Peter, or I say this, Jesus, and he's right. And he's affirmed. He gets public recognition from Jesus in front of these other guys that he got it right. Uh, And then, of course, he probably walked around for about an hour or so, or maybe minutes, with this new stature. A little swagger, maybe. Until, of course, he's shrunk right back down to Peter's size by sticking his foot in his mouth and going to his rabbi, his teacher, and his Lord and rebuking him. Uh, and I, I think in Peter we see really we see the sort of the, what I might call the inconsistency of his faith, uh, or even just the uh, the fact that all of his faith isn't fully integrated into all that he is. All he has moments of boldness, and sureness, and confidence, and doing the right thing. It's so quickly followed up by just fumbling the ball completely. And I think whenever we look in the scriptures and we see Peter, we see us, right? I mean, if there is a disciple that I relate to more than any other, it is Peter, simply because of the fact that while I'm fully into the faith, uh, the faith is not fully into me yet, if that makes sense. Peter is absolutely us. We come to church on Sunday morning and we declare the glories of God, that he is the creator, the eternal one, the ancient of days, the one with no beginning and no end, the alpha and the omega, the Savior, the Redeemer, the one who forgives, the one who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, all of these great truths that we declare together and we leave Sunday, yeah, solid, good, I'm good. And then Monday comes, right? And we go to work with our ogre of a boss. And where's our faith on Monday? And how does our faith inform our prayers on Tuesday? And on Wednesday, when the kids seem to be trying to kill us slowly and painfully, our faith is not quite as solid as it was on Sunday. Where did Sunday's assurance go? So Peter is exactly like us. We are exactly Peter. But Jesus takes even Peter 
and James and John to the mountain to pray. Uh, Now the mountain here is described as a high mountain. And if we look back in chapter 16, we see that Jesus is actually, uh, he's, he's in the region of Caesarea of Philippi. And if we look kind of around that particular area for a high mountain, we find Mount Hermon. So even though it's not particularly uh, told to us here, uh, good logic and a little bit of uh, research shows us that this was very likely the mountain. It's just 10 miles away. And uh, Mount Hermon stands, uh, stands at about 10,000 feet. Here's a picture of it. And when I look at this picture, I think, man, there's snow on that mountain. You know, I don't think of mountains, you know, in sort of the Galilean area here. I don't really think about them as tall mountains. I don't think of them as snow-capped mountains. I think of, you know, hillsides and whatnot. I don't think of Jesus in the sandals, you know, ascending, you know, what we might call mountaineering, right? But 10,000 feet is Mount Hermon, a high mountain. Uh, to give you just a little bit of comparison for reference, Donley Dome, which is nearby, stands at about 4,000 feet. Uh, Mount Adams in Washington, which I just got to see, stands at 12,000 feet. So that's more like what they climbed than Donley Dome, if you will. And um, we find that Jesus takes three of his disciples there to the mountaintop to pray. And it was there on top of this mountain that they had some remarkably encouraging experiences. And I'm going to go through these a little bit of out of, out of sequence uh, than how they appear in the text um, I don't know why, that's just how I did it. But one of the first things that stands out to me, not sequentially, is that a voice from heaven comes and confirms Peter's statement of faith. Uh, Peter, you know, who is always eager to serve, even if it's doing the wrong thing, uh, is, you know, sees these figures emerge. And this is remarkable. Let's just acknowledge, if, if, if Moses showed up this morning for worship, I don't know how we'd recognize him for one thing, but we would probably gather around and want to talk to him, Right? If Elijah came, we might have some questions. But Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain as Jesus is transfigured. And Peter is concerned about shelters. I find that a little puzzling, just kind of humorous. Like, did they bring tents? Is he whacking down trees? What kind of shelter is he building up here? But he's concerned about a shelter for these particular figures. And yet in the midst of this, he actually gets a pretty sweet moment of vindication. This voice from heaven, God's voice, says almost verbatim the same thing that Peter had said just a week earlier. This is the Son of God. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And I can just imagine Peter, again, if you don't read the text carefully, you could just imagine him with a bit of swagger going, See guys, I told you so. I called it. I called it a week ago. I knew it. However you say that in Aramaic. (laughs) But when we read the text carefully, we actually find there is no swagger. There's no pride. There's none of the errors that we have sometimes seen in Peter. But in fact, hearing the voice, all of the disciples fall to the ground in fear because they have heard the voice of God. And that reminded me of an old quote which says, no one who walks with God is prideful. No one who walks with God is prideful. For when we're in the presence of God and we see ourselves in light of him and his glory, we are humbled. We are brought low. That comparison of the 
righteousness and the holiness and the otherness of God shows us for what we are, creatures. Deeply loved by him, but humbled, humbled. Nevertheless, this encounter isn't to create fear or to make them afraid of God. In fact, we find Jesus going over and lifting up the disciples and saying what? Don't be afraid, which is interesting to me. That's what, those are the words that are almost always spoken to one who sees the Lord, right? Whether it's an angel or whatever, it's don't be afraid. So Peter wants, or Jesus wants to lift them up and encourage them. In fact, this whole experience is about encouraging them. That's the whole point. They're going to need this moment of assurance for what lies ahead. So first of all, this voice from heaven comes and confirms Peter's faith statement. But secondly, the visitors themselves confirm his statement of faith. And I think at this particular juncture, this incident begins to sound just a little bit like a Dickens novel. Okay, if you're familiar with the carol, uh, Christmas Carol, we have the uh, ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. To be honest with you, there's some correlation here. We find these figures that show up on top of the mountain with the disciples to be representative of Israel's past, present, and future, and God's ushering in of the kingdom. And that's kind of why they're there. Moses, as God's messenger, gave the law to Israel, helped establish them as a nation. He was God's chosen leader for Israel. He led them out of Egypt and through the exodus and into the promised land. So he was a deliverer of the past. We have Elijah who is frequently pictured and referenced in the scriptures and in prophecy as a figure who will return to usher in the end time. John the Baptist's ministry is said to be done in the spirit of Elijah, readying people for the coming kingdom of God. And here, of course, we have Jesus in their midst. In other words, these figures represent great periods in Israel's redemptive past and their history. Moses represented the deliverance experience at the time of the Exodus. Elijah represents the end time hope of deliverance. And all three of these figures here on the mountain represent deliverance of God's people, past, present, future. And that's kind of the significance of who is here and who the disciples are encountering. You can see, therefore, their encouragement. You can see how the disciples would be taking this in and seeing this sense of fullness and completion and activity of what God is doing redemptively with his people. So the the visitors themselves confirm Peter's faith statement and what God is uh, doing with Messiah's mission. But then thirdly here, we're given a fulfillment of Christ's promise and a glimpse of the coming kingdom. At the end of chapter 16, if you'll look back there, which should be on the same page in your Bible or your phone or however you're reading the scriptures this morning, um, there is a statement that Jesus makes that has drawn a lot of debate and questions and a lot of ink has been spilt to try to figure out exactly what he is referring to here. In Matthew 16, 28, Jesus says this, He says, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Maybe this statement has puzzled you before. There are at least, um, I I think I counted something like seven different interpretive options for what Jesus is referring to here. I'm going to cover three of them. Two are bad, one is good. Uh, The first one is one of the not so strong ones. I think some people look at this and they think, well, Jesus must be referring to the end times. That must be what 
what is meant here. Uh, a time when Jesus will come and will reign and rule in power and righteousness over all of the earth. The ushering in of shalom, the great end that we all hope and long for. The problem with this view is that if we accept it, we also would have to conclude that Jesus was wrong. Because 2,000 years have passed, those people died, Jesus is gone, and that's not what we see. So that's not a very strong view. Uh, Secondly, one option is that this is in reference to the church age. Maybe the coming of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit who would be shed abroad into the hearts and lives of believers and the power and the strength that would come from his indwelling presence to carry out the ministry that God has given to them and the Great Commission and the expansion of the church. And I think that's a possibility, but I think the weakness with that is that the church age still seems to kind of fall short of the kingdom of God as the scriptures describes it. So I think that's its weakness. The third one, which I ascribe to, I think this is what Jesus is referring to there in that statement in Matthew 16. I think he's referring specifically to the transfiguration. And there's at least three reasons for that. One, uh, he makes this statement that some of you who are standing here are not going to taste of death until you see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. And then the very next event is the transfiguration. In fact, so that's kind of the first evidence for it. The second piece of evidence for it is this, that in the three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three include this as the next event. And the three gospels are not equally committed to chronology. We've talked about this. Matthew often arranges his material thematically, whereas uh, Luke in particular almost writes it as though it were a novel and writes it very prehistorically um, or chronologically. So the fact that all three include this as the next event, I think also helps to kind of bolster the fact that that's what Jesus is referring to. And then there seems to be an explicit case for it made from 2 Peter, if you would turn there. 2 Peter. And we can see how Peter himself, who was there when Jesus made the promise, there on the mountain, and then writes about it after the fact, how he kind of links it all together. 2 Peter 1 16 and 17 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. Same words used in Jesus' promise there. For we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. In other words, I think Peter tells us explicitly that this event, the transfiguration, is the fulfillment of Christ's promise of the Son of Man coming in his glory or coming in his kingdom. And I think that's the point there. Uh, And the reason that this is important, I think, is because even though there were references made to Jesus about him being the Messiah, even though he fulfilled prophecy, even though he performed miracles, even though he showed himself to be the teacher of the caliber that Messiah would be, there were still doubts. The appearance of Jesus we find in the scriptures was very mundane, very ordinary. In fact, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53:2, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, when you looked at Jesus, you saw a very ordinary man. He wasn't particularly tall. He wasn't particularly good looking. He didn't have a beautiful head of hair, at least we're told. We're not told that he did. He didn't have a voice like James Earl Jones. 
He was a very ordinary looking man. And he didn't walk around with a glow around his head, contrary to how the Renaissance art portrays him, right? But for a few moments, on top of Mount Hermon, with his disciples, before heading into Jerusalem, before heading into his betrayal and his shame and his death and his burial, he did. He did have an array of glory around him. And here Jesus is graciously giving his disciples this experience that they might glimpse him in his future glory to assure them of his deity before this particular season of trouble that is coming to them. And I think that is the significance of the transfiguration. So we need to really see this firstly, that this was an incredibly encouraging event for Peter and for James and for John. In fact, I love the comment that's attributed to Peter when he comes to Jesus and says, this is even before the Lord has spoken, right? He comes to Jesus and says, it's really good that we're here with you. (laughs) Yeah, it really is, Peter. It's good for us to be here. As we move further down in the text, we see uh, that this encouragement was really meant exclusively or in a limited capacity for these three disciples. As they are coming, verse 9 says in Matthew 17, 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, let's just put ourselves there. Would, not, would that be difficult to do? How, when somebody comes to you and says, hey, can you keep a secret? And they tell you something. How do you do? Okay, I'm looking for smiles here because I want to know whoever is grimacing a little. Maybe those are folks I can't trust my secrets to. So I'm watching you. But they had seen something remarkable. They had seen the glory of the Lord. They had heard a voice from heaven. They had seen Moses and Elijah show up. They have seen this remarkable thing that bolstered their faith, that encouraged them. I believe they're coming down from the mountains ready to say, Wait till we have seen. Wait till you hear what we have seen. And yet Jesus says, no, this isn't for public consumption right now. This is really for you until after the sun is raised. And so the whole point of the transfiguration here as we look at it is that it was meant to encourage the disciples before a difficult season of ministry. I hope you do this in your families. I hope you, dads, I hope you gather your children to yourself at times, maybe when they're having a moment of difficulty and you comfort them and assure them and speak words of tenderness to them and kind of buck them up and give them strength and courage for whatever's ahead of them. I hope, husbands and wives, you do that to one another, that when there's a difficult time, a difficult season of life, that you... You get close together and you talk gently and you say, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this or, you know, whatever. I hope you're doing these things in your family life. The father does this in his family life. He does it here for the son. He does it here for the disciples. He pulls them close and he gives them assurance and gives them comfort and encouragement for what they need to hear. There are three particular things that happen here in ministry and I'm going to go through them very, very quickly. The first is this. The disciples are unable to heal a demonized boy. As they come down from the mountain, they encounter a father who says, come and help me with my son. He's, he's, it doesn't actually indicate that he's demonized at first, but he says he's falling into the fire and into the water and he's troubled. And so they try to go and heal him and they're unable to do so coming back to Jesus And Jesus kind of wags his finger at them and then performs what they could not perform by casting the demon out. 
but I think this was discouraging for the disciples. Why couldn't we do this? And then secondly, and much more emphatically, that there's a greater disappointment here, and that is what Jesus announces. He announces to them in verse 22 of his arrest and his death and his resurrection. It says, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. You have to remember, you have to understand here that this is not what the disciples expected of Messiah. They expected this single stage ushering in of the kingdom of God. I'm sure they thought they were right on the precipice of it, right? Having heard Jesus' promise, having ascended the mountain, having seen these figures, past, present, and future redeemers, so to speak, and having seen the glory of God and now coming down the mountain, they've got to be thinking, this is it. The kingdom of God is on. We're going to see it in glory and splendor and power. We were the first witnesses, and now you're all going to see. That's their mentality. They're at the height of heights. And Jesus says this, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. He goes on to say the good news that on the third day he will be raised to life, but the disciples seem to not take notice of it at all. They're filled with grief. Grief. This is a very difficult time in ministry. Their capability is less than they'd expected of themselves. The Lord's completion and coming of his kingdom is less than they had expected. And on top of it all, like a little frosting here, it's tax season. I mean, no kidding. They, they get through this event and then they show up in Capernaum and the tax man shows up and says, give us your money. And I'm honest with you, I love this about the scriptures, that the scriptures are wonderfully every day. Right? It's not all mountaintops and miracles. It's not all glory and splendor. It's very pedestrian, very every day. In the midst of difficult seasons, taxes come along too. Just one of those things. And I think what we are meant to see from the whole of this chapter 7 is this. That knowing the season, God provided the encouragement that they needed. He pulled them close and he gave them an experience of reassurance. And knowing the season ahead, he provided much needed strength for their faith with this unforgettable experience that they could draw from when their questions of Christ's deity might come to mind in light of his impending death. They could look back and say, no, we saw his glory. We saw his glory. And we see also that out of love, the father even encouraged the son, which was a little bit of a surprise to me to reflect upon uh, this last week. That's my third and final point, and that is that perhaps surprisingly to us, this was an encouragement for Christ himself. Uh, maybe we don't think about Jesus as one who needed encouragement. I, I think we probably oftentimes reflect upon him so much as deity that we actually forget about his humanity. We, after all, live at this vantage point on this side of the cross. We look back to these events and we clearly see the deity of Christ in the midst of it. But he was very human. Being fully God, Jesus took on humanity and became incarnate. He set aside the divine 
as the, or the independent use of his divine prerogatives. He didn't exercise all of his deity, but accepted the limitations of his humanity without forfeiting either. And as I said a couple weeks ago, I think what we find is that Jesus, in the incarnation, wonderfully shows us how God lived with a body, which is a great example for us. But there are many times in the life of Christ when he needed to be encouraged, refreshed. He needed to be sustained and ministered to. We find that after the temptation of Christ, the angels came and ministered to him, right? I'm not sure that I've ever experienced that, but I would like to. And would we know it even if the angels would come and minister to us? We also find that God the Father spoke words of affirmation and encouragement to him on a couple of occasions, right? Right after his baptism, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And again, at the Mount of Transfiguration, same kinds of words. We find throughout the Gospels that God the Holy Spirit was ministering to, strengthening and directing Jesus as well. And we find that in his ordinary life, Jesus allowed himself to be encouraged by men and women close friends like Mary and Martha and his good friend Lazarus. He was ministered to and encouraged by people around him. And so the application that I think we need to take away here for all of us is this, that God knows the season that you're in. Whether it's a season of growth or conflict or questioning or loss or trust or waiting or an amalgam of all of these together, God knows. And our God is a God who sustains us for this day, just as he did these disciples and with his own son. He provides the encouragement that we need right now. And he perfectly prepares us for what is ahead, the difficult seasons that we don't even see yet. There's a great quote by Soren Kierkegaard, who's a philosopher, and he says that life is lived forwards but understood backwards. That resonates with me. And I'm still a young man, but there are times that I look back and I go, I didn't know it then, but I see the hand of God preparing me for what he was taking me to. I didn't know it in the moment, but I can see the manifold wisdom of God then, putting into me, surrounding me with, giving me what? I didn't even know that I would need, but God knew, and he was faithful and gracious to give it. That is one of the great joys of the Christian life is that when we look back, we get to see the hand of God at work, encouraging, loving, and strengthening us for what's ahead. Would you pray with me? Our Father, our life is anything but glorious. It's very ordinary. It's filled with things like defeats and struggles and loss. And great moments of joy and rejoicing as well. It's filled with sunshine and with rain, mountaintops and valleys, and tax season. It's all there. We're thankful, God, that you took a moment in the life of Christ and with his disciples to show them your glory, to draw them close, to encourage them, to strengthen them for the difficult season that lie ahead of them. And so by faith, we take comfort and know that you too will encourage us and draw us close and speak words of affirmation and truth and strengthen us for what is ahead. 
By faith, we know that you mingle together what is good and hard, preparing us for the future. Thank you for your word.